Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... Just have this really stark realisation that leadership is what makes or breaks organisations. Leadership is that we can either propel the people forward with us and move organisations forward. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 288 of Impact Boom. My name is Indio Miles and I'm passionate about communicating the initiatives and enterprises causing sustainable and positive change globally. Today we're speaking with Dr. Joanna Nalau. Dr. Nalau is an award-winning adaptation scientist who thrives on finding clues about how humans can better see into the future and make robust decisions on how we adapt to climate change. Her Australian Research Council, DEPRA Research, focuses on understanding climate adaptation decision heuristics and the role these play in adaptation decision and policy-making processes globally and nationally. Dr. Nalau is lead author in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Six Assessment Report in Working Group 2 co-chair of the Science Committee of the World Adaptation Science Program and leads the Adaptation Science Research theme at Cities Research Institute, Griffith University. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how the climate change scientific community equips leaders and managers to act more effectively and where there are opportunities for a deeper dialogue that is inclusive of all key stakeholders. Dr. Nalau, thank you very much for joining us today. No worries, glad to be here. Awesome. So to start off, could you please share a bit about your background and what led to your interest and work in decision-making around climate change adaptation? Oh, thanks, India. I think I was studying actually for my bachelor. So I did in uh, University of Stockholm, so I did human geography because I've always really been interested in the human environment interactions. And after that, I got accepted to a master's program in Finland looking again at the human and the environment linkages. At that point, the Department of Geography had a project in Zanzibar in East Africa. And so some of the work and research I did during my master's was looking more about the interactions between the communities that lived in coastal zones and, and the kind of some of the research governance conflicts there. After that, I was lucky enough to score a new project where we looked at coastal forest buffer zones. So that's something we nowadays call ecosystem-based adaptation. So how can we strengthen biodiversity, plan more species on the coastal zone and help communities to adapt to potential impacts that they already face from flooding? And while I was doing that research, I was really struck by they had all these other issues, lots of development issues with poverty, inequality. And here we are talking about you know, climate change adaptation and rising sea levels in a really resource-poor country. We concluded the study and I really wanted to understand more what is this adaptation and how can we do it effectively. 
I applied for Griffith University for a PhD scholarship and, and got accepted. And I thought, you know, it's going to be on the Gold Coast. I'm sure they've worked it out because they have lots of resources and better better governance arrangements. I came, came to Gold Coast in 2009 to Griffith University and uh, completed my PhD looking at decision and policymaking, especially in Southeast Queensland with some of the local governance. The more I do research on that adaptation, the more questions I have. There are all these competing priorities. There's the environment, there's transport, there's urban planning. So how do we actually do these things well, but also with the view that the climate is already changing and will be changing quite dramatically as well here in Australia? Really interesting background, Dr. Nalau. And as an adaptation scientist, can you describe a bit more about what this work and this role specifically involves? And additionally, how does your work influence how people then choose to manage the environment around them? So we... So climate change adaptation is an emerging discipline, so it's, it's very much still in the making. There are a few of us who have really long-term careers looking specifically on how we adapt to climate change. That's how some of us call ourselves, so adaptation scientists, to explain our focus and, and what we do. I'm a social scientist and pretty much all my research is, as I said, about people. It's like, how do we make decisions and what kinds of heuristics do we use in the process when we think about the future and, and the current climate at the moment so my role is very diverse so I do lots of my own research here in Australia and globally as well so looking at these really fundamental assumptions that that we hold about adaptation and how we're supposed to adapt to climate change one of them for instance is adaptation is only a local issue what's often happening is that when we say that, then people are like, oh, so it's a local issue. And whose responsibility is it? It's the local government. It's the local communities. Mm. There's a lot of misperceptions because we know that to do adaptation really well, you need all levels of government. You need the private sector. You need communities. You need the public. So there's no just one entity or one person that's responsible for adaptation. My work is really looking at those fundamental assumptions and, and questioning some of them as well. I think that's, that's what's exciting for me is that adaptation is now recognised as a real issue for policy. It is inevitable, so it's something that we really need to start thinking about. I'm really interested also in how do people think about adaptation and how does that guide the decisions and, and policies that they put in place. I'm also one of the co-chairs for the Science Committee for the United Nations Environment Program. There's the World Adaptation Science Program, and I'm involved in that. So that's really bringing together key thinkers, key adaptation scientists, and, and trying to understand what are the current and emerging trends. It's a lot of late-night conference calls discussing and also producing, for instance, policy briefs that we, for instance, have, have presented at the COP26 this year. I have quite many PhD students as well who are all looking at different aspects of adaptation and then supporting their research as well. And then there's the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Our working group too is finishing our report on vulnerability impacts and adaptation next February. That's again quite a massive, exciting you know, initiative to be involved in. 
interesting field of work very expansive lots of different areas to go into so just super exciting to be able to see how that develops in the future and you were talking about there about identifying trends within people's decision making and how your backgrounds as a social scientist so what responses have you seen globally from people in different communities reacting and changing and making decisions around climate change and this could be either an individual or even an organization Oh, there's, <laughs> there's so many. I think there's lots of community-based initiatives, especially in developing countries. There's ecosystem-based adaptation. So that's looking at dual or multiple benefits. So if there's, for instance, on the coast, coastal erosion, how can we not go to seawalls as our first option? I mean, seawalls are obviously you know, needed in some locations, but how do we, for instance, plant more trees to strengthen the biodiversity at the same time? And the nature-based solutions discussion globally is really emerging and that has been a big focus on the biodiversity field and adaptation as well. There's lots of organisations and lots of initiatives, for instance, that then also engage communities in future visioning, trying to explain what is climate change, what is adaptation, what are the paths, uh, what are the what are the potential strategies and options, and trying to explain and increase their understanding. And also we talk about adaptation literacy, but also climate literacy, so that we can understand at least the basics of climate change we should be considering. And there's lots of those initiatives as well. Obviously, there's lots of policies and lots of strategies that there are different levels of governments we have seen in Australia. So there's many local governments and state governments as well who are really passionate about addressing climate change, so reducing emissions, but also thinking that we have more heat waves, if we have more extreme storms, how is our infrastructure going to fare with the standards that we have today? How are we going to communicate these really complex future-oriented issues to our communities? And how can we get the social acceptance of buy-in? that they will then support some of the initiatives that we are going to put in place. So it's actually been really inspiring to see in the last few years that there's so much more that's being done. And that's also the private sector as well. There's this youth movement now on, on climate change and young people are really up in arms that this is our future. Maybe we can't be voting, but these are really the core decisions that will impact our lives, the lives of their children as well. Yeah. Wow, that's a great overview there, Dr. Nalau. Thank you very much for providing that. And you're also, aside from your work as a climate adaptation scientist, you're also a really passionate proponent of just leadership and its role in improving people's lives. So if you could give any advice to someone, what advice would you give to someone looking to effectively lead positive change in the world around them? Yeah, I think... I came to the realization probably four or five years ago. I was going through some big changes in my personal life and I actually stumbled upon a podcast called Coaching for Leaders. Mm. And a lot of the interviews and these are some of the brightest minds on leadership and basically binge listened to the episode. And I just had this really stark realization that leadership is what makes or breaks organizations. Leadership is that we can either propel the people forward with us and move organizations forward. But if you have bad leaders, if inadequate leadership, if you have all those people who have positions, but they are not actually leading in an inclusive manner, then a lot of the efforts and a lot of the things are just going to 
they're just so constrained and so limited. So I think one of the most beautiful definitions of leadership comes from Brené Brown. He says that it's not about the position. It is about a person being brave enough to embrace the fact that they can see potential in themselves and in others to be a leader. Then they take the steps to foster that leadership potential. So that really, for me, turned around the understanding what is leader. That's what I always teach to my students, but also we have this leadership discussion. You don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to be a director. You can lead exactly where you are right Mm -hmm. now and get some of those skills. I would say that following other leaders, whether it's through social media or reading books, trying to really understand the diversity of leadership styles and models and doing some of your own thinking as well. What kind of person are you? What are your strengths? And what is the leadership style that fits really well for you? And I would say that don't wait for opportunities, but make them. So a lot of the times we might have aspirations to be be a leader. We might have aspirations to, you know, do something, but then we sit and wait and go, nobody's asked me. So I think being super proactive. And I mean, in today's world, there's so many free courses. There's so much information out there. And also seeking mentorship. A lot of people who are in leadership positions, especially those ones that you that resonate with you, a lot of them really want to, you know, embrace the potential in other people. Definitely looking into having a mentor is is really important. But it doesn't always have to be a person because I know that these great leaders get a lot of requests, but it might be joining a leadership academy, making your own leadership group or just following other people that you really respect and then keeping reflecting how their lessons apply to your own life. There's some wonderful words of wisdom that you've just provided there. Thank you very much. And all of the leaders that are listening out there, I'm sure will find something within that to be able to improve their impact and make some positive change around them. So if we're going back to that kind of discussion and that dialogue of climate change, Are there any stakeholders that are forgotten when that discussion is brought to the table? And how can we include these communities in that dialogue itself? Because we, I couldn't go to the COP26 this year, so I've been following a lot of the social media and there was just yesterday, there's this group called The Elders. So this is Mary Robinson and, and really prominent people. And and they were saying that, where are the youth? Where are the Indigenous communities? Where are the really vulnerable communities in this dialogue when we start discussing climate change? She basically said, it's to the COP audience is too wide. It's the the kind of diversity of voicing is still missing. I do have to say that UNFCCC, so the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, over the years, they have been opening more spaces for local communities, for Indigenous groups to be engaged in that dialogue. I think there is still a lot of imbalances. And, and when we talk about climate change and equality, we often forget that the people who go to these meetings and who have the decision-making power, they often are not as vulnerable. A lot of the vulnerable communities who have also major issues with development and poverty, they are not necessarily represented. I think including these communities in dialogue, there's been lots of attempts. And I think there is an emerging conversation on how can we do that. For instance, in the Convention of parties there has been more space given to dialogues so bringing different NGOs different policymakers private sector everyone together 
to, to have, have a discussion and to understand each other where they're coming from. I think part of the friction and part of the conflict comes from that we just don't understand human experience other than our own. I wouldn't know what it is to live in a coastal community that's really vulnerable or where I don't have income and have to struggle to get education for my children. Having these dialogues and, and listening to others and their perspectives, I think that's where being inclusive comes from. It's not just bringing these people into the same room or giving them opportunities to su submit uh, their opinions, but it's actually, it's, it's rests with us as well to listen uh, and, and to understand what they are going through. And then also think, how is this, for instance, with adaptation? So how is this strategy? How is this initiative actually going to deliver the outcomes that will increase the well-being um, mm. and reduce the vulnerability of those communities? And it's really important to connect those two together because it's not just about including those people within the conversation. It's also demonstrating, well, it's including those people within the conversation to actually have an outcome out of that. So yeah, yeah a really great point there, Dr. Noel. And currently, and you've touched on this a few times throughout the interview about the United Nations COP26 Climate Summit. And it's been gaining a lot of attention just globally for a variety of different reasons. So if we're looking at those kind of those summits and how we're looking forward to the future and creating that outlook on what we want to do in the future, where do you see other opportunities in that global setting for effective climate action to be taken? Every year when, when there is the uh, convention of parties, there's a lot of media around it and lots of really important discussions and also really important financial decisions that are being made. So I've been really happy to see that, for instance, adaptation-specific funding has increased. I think it's around 300 million or more at this point, mm -hmm. uh, just coming from this COP. But I think we know that countries like Australia need to, need to really start thinking and doing more strong climate actions. One of the actions that I see is, is about people voting making noise and making sure that policymakers at all levels of government understand people are serious about climate change. They are starting to understand what that means. And the Australia Institute just this year made a survey again that shows that between 60 and 70% of Australians actually want action on climate. I think the other where we are seeing lots of movement is the private sector. Some of that is, is probably below most people's radar. But there's so much, so many opportunities there as well. You know, how do, for instance, these supply chains, how are they being made more sustainable? How are they considering climate research, goes to banks, insurance, all these, all these different actors that could also have a really positive impact in reducing their emissions. But then again, often it is also about the public. And if we don't make noise, if we don't, if we just go along with the status quo, then I don't see much changing. But one of the really cool things is, is the young people, the youth. I definitely see opportunities there. We have this massive global youth climate movement coming and, and saying that this is enough. Then also making brave decisions. It's, it's like the leadership. If a decision that needs to be made, it's not always necessarily the popular one, but if it's the right one, then you do it. I think a lot of governments, so for instance, if you look at the EU, if you look at the other other kind of big players, lots of them understand the necessity on acting on climate change, but they also understand that we have to adapt. We 
have to reduce emissions and we have to also start thinking what do we do when, for instance, we have bushfires like we had in 2019, 2020. What can we do differently? How can we help our communities to start preparing or whether are there some zones where we can't actually have housing? I think there's a lot to do both in the mitigation side and, and so much on the adaptation. And I've been really happily that during the COP26, the Australian government, for instance, has released its updated national climate resilience and adaptation strategy. And they've also published their adaptation communications, stock taking where we are. And there's a lot of work to do nationally, definitely in how we can make sure that the kind of goalposts that we're setting for nationally effective adaptation are actually taken up. A few really important avenues there. So thank you very much for, for outlining those for our audience. And yeah, it's just exciting. Hopefully in the future, we'll be able to see some progress towards those goals. And to finish off, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners, whether those are relating to climate change or leadership and management? Oh, yes. So I'm a very avid reader. So <laughs> so when I started the Coaching for Leaders Academy, so I was in the Leadership Academy as well, and I actually started writing a blog on leadership books. For two and a half years, I wrote a blog every week. So I read a book every week. So I have lots and lots to choose from. But I think there's three books that have really resonated with me. So Dory Clark is a branding author. And she's all about like, how do you stand out? So obviously her book Stand Out is amazing. It's all about these stories about people who have this idea and they were not sure whether it was a good idea, but then they took a leap of faith and then they created this amazing impact, whether it's sustainability or whether it's other areas. So Stand Out is my kind of go-to book. And she has a new book out that's called The Long Game. And I still haven't uh, got my copy, but that's definitely books to look out for. I think it's sold out at this point okay. from many countries. But if you can find it, then definitely I'd already recommend that. When we think about leadership, so there's Dr. Thomas Chamorro, pre-music, and he wrote this book a few years ago that was quite controversial, <laughs> but it's called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? <laughs> yes, That's he, awesome. So, That's a really yeah, good title. So, he, <laughs> so he got a lot of press on the title. But yeah, basically, awesome. he's, he's a leadership psychologist. So the whole book is about expanding our understanding of leadership traits. And he really talks about the you know, major difference between confidence and competence. Our human psychology, when we see about somebody who's super confident, we think, oh, they must be really competent. <laughs> a lot of these leadership traits are being competent, being kind of cutthroat and showing strong leadership. And people think that, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, so that's a good leader. Then for women, we keep telling, well, if you want to recognize as a leader, you should be doing the same stuff. And what he's saying that the leaders that are actually more impactful are often they have more traits that women have. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, they're more inclusive. They're actually concerned about the people that they lead. That definitely are a really great book to read if you want to understand some of the psychology behind leadership. And he's written lots of articles on the TED Talks as well. And the last book I would probably recommend, I'm just halfway through, is by Seth Godin. So Seth is an amazing person in all the work that he's creating around marketing and, and branding and, and how do we get ideas out there and his latest book that just came out this this year is called the practice shipping creative work and 
it's such inspiring read because he talks about not outcomes. So he's saying we are also so fixated on the outcomes that we forget that the process is where the magic is. And so his book is really a call to focus on our practice. So what do we do each day? When we have an idea, he says that not everybody will like your idea because you're dancing on the frontier, mm. but the right people, it will resonate with them. Focusing on your practice, on your ideas, and, and really yeah, having focus on what you do is where the great outcomes will then result from. I think for a lot of us who, you know, are really keen to make impact. We often are really fixated on the kind of end goals and the outcomes. And I think reading this book has been really freeing in that sense, that if I put in good work and if I honor the ideas that I have, then something results. Yeah. And Dr. Noel, a few really fantastic recommendations there for our listeners. And all of those books will be linked in at the end of the article. So once they've either listened to the interview between us or they've read through the transcript, they'll be able to click on through and have a look at those. And I think there's some great insights there to gain out of both the interview and those reads. So I just want to say once again, Dr. Nalau, just Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. All of your insights around that adaptation science and climate change and the role of leadership has been really powerful and just amazing to listen to. So I, I know that I've gotten a lot out of it. So I'm more than sure that our audience will as well. So thank you for your insights and time. And I'm looking forward to seeing your work in the future. Thanks, Cindy. And thanks for inviting me. I'm always so excited when I get the opportunity to talk about not only about adaptation but especially about leadership so thanks Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.